This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in palliative care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Welcome everyone. We are having another one of our podcasts for our palliative care PhD program. I'm Connie Dolan, one of the faculty for the University of Maryland graduate program of masters in palliative care. And I'm joined by Dr. Lynn McPherson, who's the director of the graduate program and the palliative care masters at the University of Maryland. And we are really, really honored today to be talking with our colleague, um, Dr. Nessa Coyle. Um, Nessa has been a nurse leader in the United States for many years, and I don't think people understand um, the depth of her involvement, um, and she'll get to tell us more, but just to give you a sense, actually Nessa's career began in England, and she was actually looking at the other spectrum of life, um, and the, when people keep being born, um, and she came to the United States and really was involved in palliative care before we even called it. She was at Memorial Sloan Kettering and providing care to cancer patients um, and working in pain management, um, really in the sense of doing right for the patient, but we hadn't really established what was hospice, what was palliative care, what was supportive care. And she really had left her mark at Memorial Sloan Kettering um, because she became the director of the program. Um, she started uh, a nurse fellowship program there, which was one of the first in the country. Um, she and Betty Farrell wrote a book on um, suffering um, in the in the area of nursing. Um, she and Betty also started authoring the Oxford textbook of palliative nursing, which is now in its fifth edition. Um, and she has been teaching um, nationally and internationally. And so has just had such a wide effect um, both on nursing as a field, but on so many different clinicians in helping them learn this art and science of palliative nursing. So, you know, welcome, Nessa, we are so pleased that you were able to join us today. Thank you, Connie. I, I'm, I'm delighted to be here and to be part of this conversation. So when you think about your career, which um, uh, I will just also have to tell everybody that um, Nessa now lives in New York. And when you walk with Nessa, she is one of the few people I know who can walk a block faster than anybody else. So when you're gonna take a walk with Nessa, you better be ready. Um, but when you think about your career, you know, and you came over to the United States, I'm sure you had no intention necessarily of ending up where you did. What was your sort of intention when you came here and, and started working with cancer patients? No, I mean, my, my, I enjoy traveling and I, um, you know, sort of um, uh, qualified in, in London at some Bartholomew's Hospital in London and then did um, a year's midwifery uh, up in Scotland and Edinburgh in uh, Scotland. And then actually um, a little bit later spent a year as a health visitor in the slums of London and working mm -hmm. with um, really at high risk mothers and small babies. So that was sort of the, the trajectory. And then I went to Australia to, um, just to see a little bit of that country and um, 
to Malaysia and Cambodia. And so I, I was sort of in this traveling mode, as I think many of us are when we, uh, when we uh, first graduated and are young and um, seeing the world with fresh eyes and uh, enormous possibilities. Um, and then I, I think it, it was very much, um, my focus was on, and my interest was in neurological nursing. And I did a year's uh, postgraduate at the Montreal Neurological Institute. So that was really my focus of interest, of, of great interest. Um, and then um, just my, uh, in a way, travel lust, uh, I ended up in New York City where I had friends and spent a year at New York Hospital on the neurology unit. And it, it just wasn't a good fit for me. Mm. And um, I did about three months sort of um, uh, holding up in a, a friend's attic in Connecticut. And, um, and then there was a, a, an opening, a new neuro-oncology unit was opening at Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center. And a friend of mine said, you know, this may be a good fit for you. And so that's how I ended up really in Sloan Kettering, just by chance. And you thrived. I mean, you did so much there in terms of, um, I know you had a partnership with Dr. Kathy Foley and Dr. Richard Payne, but you're really in the avant-garde of kind of really thinking about this pain management and um, thinking about the field. I think I think um, you uh, you give me credit for the not really do. I think it was I think it was this this natural evolution of being in a setting which was incredibly nourishing for me, and being in an area where um, the issues of pain and suffering. Um, were just very evident. It was on the neuro-oncology floor where um, a lot of people with pain were admitted because pain wasn't really a specialty in those days. And uh, uh, Kathy Foley was, was recruited by um, uh, Dr. Jerry Posner really to, to look at um, pain um, and to try and understand it, to look at the science of pain and to uh, address its management. So it was really this, I was in the right place at the right time and um, had a very, in a way, had a, a common spirit in a way of viewing the world as Kathy Foley. So we, we formed a really, a really a nice team. So it was, it was sort of a natural course of events which wasn't pre-planned, it just evolved. And just, I think, in the way that um, supportive care, care and palliative care um, and uh, the way it's being looked at now as, as really an integral part of care um, it it's just has evolved. And so surely there's been some planning along the way, but it's been this natural evolution of a need was there. And um, I was in a setting where the need was recognized and could be addressed. I think you mentioned something that, you know, I, I don't think some people would know is that, you know, we, many people would take pain management for granted and think about you know, the cancer floor would be the right place or something else, but you're sort of saying that um, nobody knew that much. And so it was in fact the neuro-oncology floor that was thinking about the pain of the neurological pathways and, and looking at it that exactly. way. It was, exactly, it was, it was looking at the science. And just as now on palliative care, we look at the science as well as the art um, and try to understand it, understand what is it um, that people need and what is it that people are addressing. And it, I mean, it's interesting because all the way through this, this idea of, and that's why nursing is very much in the forefront, I think of this idea of um, um, listening and trying to understand the meaning behind the words and to recognize suffering and to be quiet and just to sit and listen and be present. And then to try and sort it out in this multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary way. But what is it that people are asking for? And what is it that we're seeing here? 
and then how can we how can we best uh, address it? So lots of lots of conversations about what we were seeing, and and those conversations were part of both the art and part of the science. We needed to understand the art. We needed to understand the science. We needed to understand the language. We needed to understand all of those. But you're right. This was in the setting of uh, neuro-oncology. Uh, and then because that's where pain, patients with pain were usually admitted. And that's where then one saw this tremendous amount of suffering, not only on the part of patients, but also on the part of families. And when they went back into the community. So it was this, this it was this, in a way, it was this, this story, this picture, Connie, which was slowly unfolding in front of our eyes. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that, um, you know, the other part of letting our students know that, you know, you had this clinical interest, but you also really felt about um, the ethics and kind of the rights of patients. And so, you know, getting your PhD and, and, um, and for the students to know that I had worked with Nessa on a particularly, uh, important position statement, which is physician assisted death. So I had to really see how Nessa's mind worked in the ethical part. But, you know, if you can speak to sort of your um, dedication to patients and what their needs were and sort of then getting into that ethical realm, I think would be really, really interesting for our, our students to hear. Yeah, it was, um, that's a, a, another really focused interest to me. So, so it was the communication, it was the language, what were people asking for? And that's what I focused my, um, that was my, uh, uh, PhD um, uh, research on when people in a cancer center where most people go wanting to live as long as they can, there's a subgroup of people who are asking for a hasten death. What were they actually asking for? And what was that language conveying? Um, and then as all of this sort of unfolded, I became again increasingly in interested in bioethics and that the, the, the um, really the, the um, really the obvious nature that everything we do is uh, uh, is underpinned by bioethics. That's the nature of our practice. And sort of, again, these, these they sort of folded into each other. And I did a, a year's um, a certificate program in bioethics. Um, um, and the major person who set that up was Nancy Dubla. So these were, again, all, all sort of uh, natural fits. And as the, um, as the issue so of pain and understanding pain, the mechanism of pain, um, trying to sort it out the, the tissue damage response of pain and the suffering component, component of pain and trying to sort those out and then how we would arrive at management approaches to address these different etiologies. Um, uh, and then um, it became very, very clear that we had a, a, um, a, sub, a subgroup of, of patients who, um, uh, when they came to the uh, outpatient clinic, uh, the pain clinic, um, there was enormous suffering expressed by them. Their family was falling apart. Uh, they were coming into our emergency room, the urgent care, for symptoms which could have been controlled with earlier intervention. So that we needed, we recognized that we needed to, um, to, um, to be able to identify this, this subgroup of patients and families who needed uh, an extra level of support. And, um, and so that, that's, we then developed a supportive care program which was an outreach program to these patients and families who were specifically in need. And actually at that time, we, we really, we, for, the, for one particular patient, we did develop telemedicine. And we had this whole telemedicine um, set up in his house, um, which was, uh, yeah, which was, was really interesting. And now telemedicine is really such an um, a, a integrated thing, particularly with, with COVID. 
So again, Connie, it's this, this, this natural evolution of these things built on the next, the next, the next. And it was really um, uh, the need to have one's eyes wide open to see what one was seeing and not just sort of keep on going in the same old way, but recognizing um, that things need to change. There's something that needs to be addressed here. And that's both the ethics and the, and the, um, the rights of patients, rights of families, um, and the importance of a team working together. So all of this initially was under the Department of Neurology, and they were very supportive of this program. And, and it was teamwork and very, very much teamwork. And well, I think you speak to, you know, the importance of, of kind of understanding the context, um, being asked by you recognizing um, a need wasn't being met working with right. an institution to offer some solutions, right? Of, and may not have been- I, I, would, I would, yeah, I didn't interrupt you there because again, things that one could do early on, I was able to do, it would be more difficult now and I acknowledge that. So mm -hmm. as I learned that it's better to do something first, have it working and then ask permission. <laughs> I think that's what a lot of palliative care has been about, right? That right. we sort of use some of our parts and we move forward. Um, right, what's the, the saying? Um, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. That, that's, and, and so, yeah, so, so I, I, that was really a very, and it was easier to do in, in the days, those days, I think, but, um, but um, perhaps not so easy now. So I recognize that. Well, well I, I think, I, I think. No, I think people still are sort of trying to figure out when you want to do something different. If you, um, people are so, um, yeah, staying to the cloud of stew, they want to just do what it has been. And I think that's been some of the conversation I've been, um, thinking about recently is that, you know, we keep saying healthcare wants to change, but everybody's saying, but this is how we've done things. So it's this real part of knowing where we need to go, but people are afraid to change. And, um, and the whole way our payment structure um, supports the old way and not moving forward. So that's a whole other issue. But I think when you think about, um, you know- And then you we also, just, sorry, yeah. Go ahead. There was a, a lot of, again, there was, there was um, uh, a lot of support, institutional support. Um, from the actual um, the neuro-oncology unit, incredibly supportive of it because it was working, it was effective, mm -hmm. um, and it was the right thing to do. And that was, that was recognized by everyone within the group. Um, well, then I think for you, though, of like, you know, you made this evolution from doing midwifery to neurology, you know, um, and then you also became a nurse practitioner and then you went your right. got received your PhD. I mean, so you also continued to grow as a clinician as you were... Right gaining all of this and, and moving this program along as well. Right, that, that's, um, uh, that's correct. So when you think about um, uh, in, you know, you've talked about you know, being able to start this and getting a support, but were there other things that you felt were going on in the larger world of the development of palliative care that were significant for you as you were kind of thinking about both moving the program along and your own um, practice and sort of becoming more of a leader? I think that um, just to, um, I think that the, the um, to, to begin with the program is very small and it was recognized that within the institution, the need was huge. And so the program needed to get large needs to expand. Um, and I think that was one of the reasons um, and that there was, all, there had been already a um, fellowship program for physicians, a small fellowship program for physicians and there was obviously the need for, because this was teamwork, the need for a similar uh, fellowship program 
uh, for advanced practice nurses. And initially it, it was for um, clinical nurse specialists. And then um, it became obviously very important that there was, uh, that the um, advanced practice nurse was able to um, have prescription uh, privileges and could sort of move ahead in, in a collaborative practice. And so then it became that it would be, uh, that it was a, um, uh, nurse practitioners, because in the state of New York, they had the they had the um, uh, uh, they had prescription privileges, which clinical nurse specialists did not. Um, so so it was recognised that there was this expanding role, um, that nurses needed to have specific qualifications coming into the coming into the program, and that that physicians and nurses needed to train together. So they were both had specific needs, which perhaps could be directed a little bit towards them, but they needed to have a similar background, develop a similar language, have the same uh, uh, scientific knowledge of how to address pain. So that became very, very obvious. And now the, you know, the program's expanded so that now I think there are five advanced practice nurses as well as um, five um, uh, physicians uh, in, the, in the program. And we've just started now to include a physician assistance in the program, so that's so that's new, um, and and again, so it's it's recognised the the importance of um, uh, nurses, advanced practice nurses, in the role of palliative care, and um, also um, that with that with the um, with the recognised need, that also become responsibilities. So it's a very high level of of of, of practice that, that that's required. Well, and um, I think you know I'm impressed by that because I think. Um, one, um, you know, we're still, however many years later, uh, for our students to understand that physician fellowships started um, before the recognition of palliative care as a medical specialty, and they weren't probably as organized. Um, and there are now some 70 or 80 fellowships, and some of the programs have you know, seven and eight. And at any one time in the country right now, um, in terms of APR and fellowships, there's like eight to 10. One is in the community. None of them allow for clinical nurse specialists, which is a problem because I think as far as APRNs, we want to be inclusive and have both. Um, there are some that have started to include a social worker or a chaplain, but I think we're still coping within hospice and palliative care that um, ironically, even though it was kind of a nurse-led um, hospice movement here, um, it, in palliative care, it became very physician part and we haven't brought the non-physicians the same opportunities to sort of have some of this training. And I think the second thing you spoke to is even when we have fellowships, we have to be very aware of the fact that there is content that all of us need to know. And there will be role development that we need in each one of our disciplines. And so while I want all my students to hear from Lynn, you know, with all of the pharmacology part, she's not going to be able to tell people about, you know, the APR on role. And I wouldn't be able to talk about the physician role. So, I mean, the pharmacist role. So we have to kind of, you know, think about that. But we still haven't figured that out, I think. And that's an interesting part that, you know, here we've been in this mode in this country, if you if you just want to start till the hospice benefit, you know we're looking at close to fifty years, um, but we're still figuring out some of the education piece. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really important, and I, I think there's um, um, particularly in these in this sort of collaborative practice groups, it's it's um, whether or not um, uh, both a physician and a nurse, advanced practice nurse, sees every patient, or does that advanced practice nurse have his or her own batch of patients 
and the physician never sees them unless that advanced practice nurse wants them to see that patient. So all of that I think is, is, uh, is, is unfolding and, and the issue of, of reimbursement and the practice model of the particular institutions. I think all of that's unfolding. Um, I so I think that the, um, so I think it's um, gone from just uh, this evolution from uh, pain and palliative care under the Department of Neurology, Neuro-Oncology, which is how it started at Sloan to um, palliative care, um, which encompassed pain, although there's a separate anesthesia pain service. And then um, uh, over the last few years, uh, it's changed to supportive care. Um, and, you know, people have different viewers about, about that, um, you know, and, and it was, I, I think it was because of this, this, um, this um, very difficult um, issue of, of uh, that this, this um, feeling that palliative care was only end of life care, rather than being integrated throughout the course of the disease trajectory, um, and not related to, um, to closeness to death, but related to need. And so that's from an oncological viewpoint, even though it's you know, clearly stated, um, it, it's still difficult for, for oncologists not to twin that uh, with palliative care, with, with end of life care. And so it became um, sometimes difficult for patients to be referred to palliative care, but it seems to be um, um, more acceptable to some for supportive care. But I'm not sure the changing the language makes a difference and, oh, it's interesting because you, know. you bring up, I mean, I, you know, I think no matter what we call it, patients will figure out what it is. <laughs> um, and so who are we palliating? Are we palliating the referring providers or are we palliating the patients? And I, I just, I mean, you know, it's right. just an interesting. Um, no, it, it is. I agree with you. And it's not, it's not solved. But I, I think the, the other thing is there's such a huge need, Connie, that the reality is that, well, first of all, I think it is really important that everyone, every nurse and every social worker, uh, is a palliative care, you know, a, a primary palliative care person. They have to have those basic skills. And when do you refer someone to a specialty palliative care program or supportive care program? And the reality is because the need is so great across the spectrum that most people who get referred uh, to the palliative care specialty program uh, have advanced disease. That's the reality. Okay. And I mean, and, and so that's also interesting because I think, um... You know, where my work has been, at least in my state in the last um, number of years, is um, knowing what happens at academic medical centers and then trying to bring it out to the communities. And in my small little state of Massachusetts, um, you know, what happens in the community, um, you know, with a 25, 30 mile radius outside of Boston versus the other side of the state, which uh, borders on New York. Vermont, New Hampshire, um, you know, we still have patients there that don't have access to palliative care in their communities. And they have to believe, believe it or not, Massachusetts is small, I know, but they might have to drive an hour or two to get to a palliative care provider. Um, and so that to me, I mean, it speaks to your point about, you know, how do we ensure that all clinicians have these primary palliative care skills, but even also expand that. Because when I think about the communities, I think in some of these smaller communities, the best refers 
are the physical therapists because they're seeing these patients and what do they have to do? They have to measure their function. And so, you know, what if we had them, you know, do a palliative performance scale or something like that, that would really push that. Or you might have the pharmacist in these small pharmacies who are noticing that all of these prescriptions are happening and going, hmm, they must be having more uh, comorbidities, you know, should I be sort of talking about that? So it's an interesting evolution, I think, of, um, you know, where are we in this time of space of, of moving out the education and moving this whole concept of primary palliative care providers? Right. I think that's, yeah, I think that's being recognized. I think that what's certainly being recognized in the oncology setting is most of the care now is at home and in an outpatient setting. So the need for really, um, really uh, skilled and comprehensive palliative care, um, supportive care slash uh, in an outpatient setting in those clinics is absolutely essential. And then again, how the role of the nurse and the, uh, and the advanced practice, uh, the physician and the advanced practice nurse and the RN, how those roles all work together and complement each other. And you know, people are still finding that out. Um, the other thing that I think is incredibly important um, and so it's it's a part of uh, ethics, but, but uh, clinical ethics, but also also um, this this issue of communication, communication skills is absolutely essential. And I work with the in the department of um, of psychiatry and behavioral medicine as part of the communication skills team, both teaching and facilitating in that for physicians and and nurses, and um, advanced practice nurses and um, RNs by the bedside. Um, so, so I think these skills, this um, um, understanding uh, pain from a um, from a tissue damage response and from a suffering component, understanding clinical ethics um, and uh, uh, communication skills, and those communication skills um, really sh should be again part of the skills of every single RN by the bedside and also certainly advanced practice nurses, and starting those conversations with patients early on just early on, so they're not frightened by palliative care. They're not frightened by those words. It's part of a normal conversation you have with every single patient about their values, what's important to them, what sort of care do they want, and then readdressing them um, periodically. And so it becomes a normal conversation that you have with every patient and with every family. So I think normalizing these things that we do as, as, a, as a way of practice, as comprehensive practice is really important. And I think nurses have played a big, a big role in, in this. So it's, so it's skills, it's, 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 it's the, the, the science, the art, it's clinical ethics, uh, being a part of a clinical ethics consultation team, and it's communication. These are all advanced practice nursing skills, which are essential. Well, I think also them. taking advantage of those educational parts. So um, I will, I don't know if you remember this. Um, so for our students, um, Nessa came to visit me at my setting and I was asked to do a teaching session for case managers. And I brought Nessa along with me and we did a talking about palliative care and um, we were asked to do a role play. So Nessa and I had not practiced yeah. um, and um, I, I think you were playing a woman with breast cancer and I was playing the nurse interviewing. Um, we did a, it must've been about 10 or 15 minutes. And by the time we were done, the case managers were in tears. Oh, God. Uh, and, and it was, but it was so powerful because I think what they were allowed to see was that um, you needed to go deep sometime and that um, 
these weren't easy conversations, but that at the end, you could do a much better care plan because you've actually asked the questions. Um, but the power in that was the emotion, I think. Um, and I just remember you and I hadn't practiced. We looked at each other and said, okay, we'll just try. It's best not to practice. It's best just to be spontaneous. But I think this idea of sitting with the emotion and listening and not, and I, and I think, yeah, to be able to sit and to, uh, the other thing I think that, um, could, because some of these, um, situations can be so distressing and so upsetting. But to recognize that, uh, I I've always worked with an internal uh, anxiety thermometer. When I feel it going up and up and up inside me, I, you know, I, I, I've learned to recognize that and to quieten it down. Because if, you, if you're anxious when you're sitting with a patient and your mind is full of self-talk about, I don't know if I can do this, I don't know if I can sit here, you're not listening to the patient, you're not being present. Right. Um, I think of that, I mean, and you have had, you know, so many different experiences. Um, I would love for our students to be able to hear, you know, you've traveled the world in teaching um, and you've taught in places where there was translators, um, but then you've taught um, in places where, you know, the conditions were um, just varied. And I'm wondering like what some of those lessons for you about teaching internationally in some countries that were more developed than others how did that enrich your practice and what did you learn from that kind of just in terms of global palliative care? Well, I think, I mean, the, the principles are the same. I have to tell you, Connie, I mean, sitting by the bedside and listening and to, to understanding what the nature of suffering is of that person and then what's possible within that area. There's no point talking about things which are not possible. So what do they have available and how can you teach people how to use those things? So talking about pain, so talking to a patient who is lying in the bed, terrible bed sore, perhaps a paraplegic because a cord compression wasn't recognized, knowing that person had terrible pain before they lost a function of their lower extremities. Um, listening to those conversations and then addressing it as best you can within, within, the, um, within the cultural context. And um, you know, hearing the voices of nurses when you're talking to nurses, you know this, you've done a lot of international work too, Connie, of knowing all the barriers they're up against and really supporting them and encouraging them and finding out what are the tools that they have available and how can they best use them and how can they advocate for their patient. So again, another big role for advanced practice nurses is advocacy and you know the different types of advocacy, recognizing what's, what's needed and then advocating for that patient and family. And you might need to do it as in a foreground or you might do it in the way of, of making sure that that patient and family have all the information they need so they can make an informed decision. And that's what I love, Nessa, um, because that your last point is so important for all of palliative care providers. We are not trying to make them make decisions or to forego treatments or whatever. We're trying to give them the information so that they can make an informed decision. And I think sometimes people get confused about that. If you think about, you know, when you get referrals to make them a DNR or to make them understand, you know, I always, when I got those referrals of make them a DNR, I was like, okay, this is going to be a conversation where I'm listening to the patient, right? Because they, at a certain point in my mind, have been harassed by people that they're not making the right decision. Um, and I think this whole interesting part that we're offering people a choice, but then we don't like their choice. And so we get mad at them. Um, but then also just making sure that, 
they're, they do have the knowledge that they know they have a choice. And I think the case that is the most um, to me visible for that was I was called, and this was early in the palliative care development when I started it with Andy, um, I got called to the ICU of a woman who was probably in her early 50s um, and she had adriamycin induced cardiac um, decompensation and they were going to do a procedure on her and what became apparent to me is that she might not survive this that she, you know her heart was so damaged and her lung capacity was so damaged that either they wouldn't be able to put her on a vent they wouldn't be able to you know with uh, take her back off of the vent or she would die interoperatively and and my angst was whatever she needed to do was fine. She had two teenagers, but she didn't even understand that she might not survive this procedure. Mm-hmm. And where my role was of thinking about who was the best person to talk to her. And so I called up her primary care provider and said, this is who I am. Um, don't know if you know about our service, but I got asked to be involved. You have this great relationship with her. Here's my worries. And I wonder if you can help me to talk to this person. And it wasn't that I wanted her not to do it, but I, my, my real part was probably because I was a mother. If she, before she went into the surgery, I wanted her to have been able to say goodbye to her family, knowing she might not be out. Um, and so that's what I think you're talking about is this advocacy part um, that it is ultimately their choice and we may not agree with it, but part of our role is to let it happen. I absolutely it's part of our role, but, but but also to make sure that if someone is is um, asking for something which doesn't make sense to you, it doesn't make sense, just to be sure that you know what they're hoping for from this. Mm-hmm. And is it likely to achieve it? And, and if it's not, so that say say that that you can give them another way which would probably achieve it without uh, without um, you know an, 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 an intervention which won't achieve it. So I think if something doesn't make sense, to, to sort of sort of, what are you hoping for from this? What's important for you? This is another way that we could, that perhaps it could be achieved. So again, trying to, because sadly people, um, particularly when their life is threatened, uh, sadly they um, made decisions based on fear. And most of us have made decisions based on fear and they tend to be not the right decisions. So mm-hmm. to try and, and sort, those, sort those things out. I mean, we, we all have the right to make a bad decision. Um, but, but I think just trying to understand what someone really wants, uh, is hoping for um, from what they're asking for, which in your mind doesn't quite make sense. And if you know that's what they want, then that, that, that's fine. But if it's based on something that they were hoping for, which isn't possible to achieve in that way. You also make me think about, you know, we're focused on the patient and the family, but also you could use your same principles for our palliative care teams that we also have to work as a team and be very cognizant of what we're hoping for. And is that realistic, right? Because sometimes as a team, we get pulled way into the psychosocial and think that we can fix some of these pieces that we can maybe help some psychological healing um, more than the physical healing, but we may not be able to to do that. Right. I think the other thing, uh, Connie, that's really important is, is um, and usually it's not a problem with advanced practice nurses, it can be with an RN, um, to feel that their voice is important, to make sure that they, they have a voice at the table and to recognize that because they hear things that many other people don't hear. So a lot of things to recognize why 
why a patient will tell them something in the middle of the night. And yet in the daytime, when the family's there, they'll tell them something else. So to understand about why sometimes people, families or patients will make a decision based on not what they would want if they were just an isolated individual, but within the construct of their family, it's a relational autonomy in a way. And they're making this decision based on what they feel is best for the family. And that's their choice. So it's for nurses to sort of understand why you can hear different things. Um, but also that, that, what they, that they need to have a place at the table at these team meetings to, to um, talk about what they heard, um, and, but also to recognize that what they think is the best um, course of action may not be the course of action that's followed, but at least they've had their voice heard at the table. Well, I think you so that's an this. important thing for to learn for nurses to learn sometimes. Well, and I think for the whole team, right? Because I think right. sometimes that's why we need to come together as a team of, you know, Lynn might go in and interview as a pharmacy and ask about medications and patient might just throw something out there because they sort of feel like maybe she's not a threat, um, but then not say something. I mean, I think my experience, you know, when we did the Temel study was, you know, I would be in the room and Jennifer Temmel would ask a question and the patient and family would answer, she would leave the room and I would ask the question again and I would get this whole different answer. And I would walk out of the room and she'd say, I don't understand. Why are they not telling me that? And I said, because you're the oncologist and you will be prescribing their treatment and they're afraid if they say that to you, you won't do it versus I have a whole different role. And so, you know, what patients and families decide to tell different people is fascinating and why we right. have to come back to a team, right? Right, right, right. And then I think, I think there are a lot of other things which, um, um, you know, that, that you know, with, a, with a sort of concept, uh, with the underlying principle that that, that um, care should be directed by uh, the values, goals and values uh, of, the, of, the, of the patient and not by technology that's available is again a really important principle. And then how, how many of these things, what sort of charting system do you have? And are these values of patients, um, you know, held, uh, 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 these conversations held across a, a continuum where they were found in the chart? Are they buried in a chart? So you never know if so it's a new conversation each time or have you developed at some sort of standard of charting where there's a tab which says uh, value or values tab that you can go to right away and say, ah, oh, this is a conversation that's been had. And so you can pick up on a previous conversation. Remember, you told me six months ago or three months ago when we sat down and talked that these are the things that were very important to you. These are your values. I just want to check um, that this, this is still the case. This is where you were with the treatment options. This is where the situation is now. So it's a, again, it's this ongoing conversation rather than a brand new conversation each time. Hmm. So, you know, Ines, when you think about how things have evolved, you know, what do you think are some of the current challenges we have right now um, to not necessarily fix, <laughs> but to work on within the field of hospice and palliative care? Oh gosh, I think there. I think um, I think there. There are a lot. I think you know, funding is certainly a, a, a huge one. I think that there's um, what struck me, and uh, again, it may be improving. I don't know, but but the the um, the quality of different hospital mm -hmm. programs can be very very different. Mm -hmm. And so again, how that's evaluated, and how there's handoff when a patient is discharged from an inpatient setting to a home hospice, 
How does that happen? Is it just on a piece of paper? Is it always is it a standard that there's a conversation from um, an advanced practice nurse or a nurse who knows that patient well, who will talk to, to someone who's going to be accepting the patient? Because again, I think recognizing that when someone, a patient is discharged from one sort of setting, which they're very familiar with what the routine is, to a, um, a home hospice setting, for, for example, that's a type of high risk for patient and family distress and being overwhelmed. So I think that's a, that's a huge area that needs to be addressed. And I think um, the need for outpatient um, high level palliative care services. And then, you know, uh, I think that uh, all of us have a responsibility in a way, particularly at academic centers to be available to work with community nurses and community physicians. So to bring the expertise of an academic center out into the community. So there needs to be a resource available that's readily available. And you're seeing this a little bit in the COVID with some of the things that have been happening, for example, in India and the terrible, uh, you know, terrible um, uh, crisis that they've, they've had um, that, that sometimes you know, people from, from that country are doing their work here in palliative care, oncology or whatever it is, medicine. And then they're by phone, they're consulting with their, their family or colleagues in India to bring the expertise. So I think that, that that sort of networking, that sort of outreach is incredibly important because the need is so great and because we're living longer, as we live longer, we're dying harder often. So there's this, this, this huge need. Um, but I think that we can do it. I think if we, I think sort of if it's recognized and if there's a task force to set out, how can we do this automatically? How, how is this an automatic thing, not just an add-on if I have the time? But if you've got a complex patient who's discharged, is there always a verbal handoff? Is there always um, outreach to see how that person is doing? In a rural community, does an academic center, are they available to, to outreach? So this sort of network just, you, you saw it in a way with COVID when you know, there were some hospitals which were totally overwhelmed and had no beds and other hospitals which were not so overwhelmed. Could there not have been some sort of network where people were organized to which hospitals those patients would be sent um, based on the availability of expertise, et cetera. So I think there's a way of looking at, the, at this economy. Well, and I think, you know, you bring up, there was a very interesting thing that happened with COVID, right? That a lot of things that people had been trying for a long time and hadn't been able to do, all of a sudden it's a crisis. And so people are willing to try that. And I think you're right about some of the new models. You know, I think there's this, this interesting part also um, that you kind of bring up of um, uh, beyond the patient and family, you know, what is our responsibility to each other if we're palliative care specialists? Um, you know, how do we act as a resource to our colleagues and do it in a healthy way so that we don't, you know, experience moral distress and burnout, um, but that we are doing it um, systematically because I think as, as we all know, there's a workforce shortage. Um, we're gonna be having more aging people. I love the comment that you just said, we're living longer and dying harder. <laughs> um, you know, I think that that's something really important for our students to think about um, because there's so many dimensions to what the future of palliative care is. Um, just also what you said, just because we have technology doesn't mean we should be using it. Um, do you have some other thoughts in terms of you know, if, if you were to look and you said, okay, when I see these things, I will know that palliative care 
in the United States and globally is in a good place? What would be some of those markers to say we've really <laughs> arrived? We'll, we'll never arrive because the situation changes. So I, I, I would think we, we're always looking, we're always, our eyes are open. Um, we, we, we write, we have literature. Um, uh, I think that's incredibly important. I think the, the actually the, the palliative textbooks of palliative care nursing and our advanced palliative care nursing were incredibly important because before that there really wasn't anything. So I think that that was really, really important and it was put out by the Oxford text. So I think that was really a landmark thing to do. So I think always learning, always observing because the nature of things are going to change all the time. So I think not being sort of stuck in our ways and uh, actually, but to be open and to be observant and be curious and to learn from the patients in front of us, not to assume. It's, you're always going to see something new. If your eyes are open, you may miss it, but there's always going to be something new and to record it, to talk about it. Um, yeah, and, and to work as a team. I think you also, I mean, I think you are right that um, the landscape will continue to change. Um, why we did things, you know, 50 years ago was a very different landscape in terms of the technology we have or did not have. Um, as a culture, what we talked about, although I would say if you were to think about the needle that we've done on the comfort of talking about death, I don't think we've really that's still a place that we have a lot of work to do because we have still such a youth-oriented culture. Um, so we or still otherwise, have to we're, otherwise we're hastening death. I mean, it's interesting, Connie. I mean, that's a whole discussion in itself. So that there's, you know, there's certainly the youth orientation in, in every single way, uh, in, in every way. Certainly, you see it in, in New York. Um, but uh, I think it's this issue of um, just, just really. Uh, really, and it, it, more than you can say it, but really to, to feel it, that, that end of life is as important as the beginning of life. And it's part of one's life story. And to be able to really, to, to really um, sit with that and understand that, and each phase has a different beauty to it. But, but again, society, um, uh, certainly in, in um, New York, and I'm sure elsewhere in the country, uh, is this issue of, you know, I can end my life, I have the right, when, I, when my life is fulfilled on my terms, then um, I should have to be able to, to have it ended. So again, it's, it's this rather a strange thing, I think, that culturally we're, we're looking at and made and, and, and all the rest of it. And, um, but it's, and I'm not saying I'm for or against it. My, I mean, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm not for it, I'll say that. Would, would my mind change, who knows? But I, I, but I think it's just this natural letting uh, a, a life go its natural course. But if, but if we if we accept that 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 end of life is as important as the beginning of life and all the way through life, then there are responsibilities that society has to put the money where the mouth is with that. I was really really struck that um, a, a couple of months ago my brother-in-law in England died, and he was you know he, he was. Uh, a couple of months from his 95th birthday. So he'd had a long life, uh, five children, lots of grandchildren, et cetera. But, uh, um, but and it was, he was almost blind and, and very much dependent, uh, physically dependent for all his care, which he didn't like anyone but my sister rendering him, which again is not uncommon in the elderly. So the, the family get, gets exhausted. And his kids were sort of scattered and had young children of their own. But so he was admitted to the local hospital, which was a good hospital. 
um, for, uh, he wanted a complete workup just to make sure there was nothing that was reversible. And that was okay. That was quite reasonable. And then it was clear that he was coming to the end of his life. So the, the hospital under the National Health Service then uh, arranged this, what they, and he wanted to go home to die and family wanted him at home. They arranged this end of life sort of package. And it was, it was, um, it was extraordinary. They had a night sitter for 10 hours. So this was, this was like a standard package for six weeks and then it would be reassessed to see how the person was doing. So there was a, a, a night sitter for, for a 10 hours. There were two carers who came in four times a day to turn him from side to side and just check on him, change him if he needed to be changed. And there was an RN who, uh, he had a syringe driver who would come in on a daily basis, uh, 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 adjust the syringe driver and would be available um, uh, as often as needed on, on 24 hour call. And that care, the carers and that nurse were arranged through a local hospice, but it was all set up by the, by the um, uh, um, uh, hospital where he was. And none of it was at any charge to the, to the family at all. So that amount of care, I'm still astounded. And the idea that there would be someone to sit with him for 10 hours every night, seven days a week, was I think extraordinary. And that in a way was putting your money where your mouth is. So the family, my sister Missy wasn't allowed to give out any medication, anything. Her role was to be the wife and the children, their role was to be the children. So it really, I'm, I'm, I'm still amazed by that. It really struck me. Well, I think what you're speaking to, you know, is again, um, and Lynn has heard me say this, um, you know, in the United States, in you know, 60s and 70s, we made this choice of pulling care to the hospital because it was easy for us, you know, um, but I don't think it was patient and family centered. And to get that change, to get those community services has been so hard because we label that type of care custodial. Right. And we expect the families to take in and, and step in as healthcare providers with absolutely no training um, and then wonder why it doesn't you know, succeed at times when we're asking them to do things that in the hospital, we would never ask them to do. So it's a very interesting conundrum about what we've done with that. I think that's beautiful because I think in not only letting them be family caregivers, but the cost probably of that versus having your brother-in-law in the hospital for six weeks, right? you know, is just got to be much less and a better experience, better quality of life, better healing for everybody emotionally it's, and physically. It's, yeah, it's, it's a humane care. Because I think, again, that families are much smaller. They're scattered throughout the world. Uh, and so it's usually that care provided care it lands on one person to it the most. And how can they be available at night? They can't, so they get exhausted. They right. get crabby. They, you know, there's, it, it's, and someone would rather, you know, hurry up and die. Right. So I, I think all of these things within society, I, I think one needs to look at society as a whole and what are we asking for? And the fact that we're asking for our death, you know, for us to choose the time that we die and, and, our, and, and the responsibility of medicine to end our life, uh, I, I think it's, 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 I think it's a societal thing which needs to be looked at. Yeah. 
No, it's very, very interesting. I think you bring up, you know, this beautiful part that we, you know, haven't had this theme before of the ethics and really looking at the society responsibility to us as, as um, citizens. Um, yes and um, what is healthcare really defined as. And I think, you know, with a movement of looking at structural racism and social determinants of health, maybe, you know, we'll start really understanding that healthcare is broader and that there's medical needs and there's social needs and probably we need to work on the social We need needs. to be willing to put, to put, we need to be willing for our taxes to go to this. Right. So it's, it is a hard decision. These are really, you know, we have, we have to, agree that this is what we should be spending our money on, that this is important and that end of life is as a natural ending of life is as important as the beginning of life. It's all part of our story, which unfolds. So when you think then um, for our students um, who are entering the field now, and it might be clinical, it might be research, it might be ethics, it might be policy, what is your advice to them as um, new leaders, because I think by getting a PhD, you step into a leadership role. <laughs> um, what is your advice to them? I think that all of these are part of, of nursing. So it's not, they, they will need to know about policies, they'll need to know about culture, they'll need to know about clinical ethics, they'll need to know about the science and the art, they'll need all of these things. It's not, they can't just focus on one area. If they're really going to do um, um, advanced practice nursing, PhD nursing, whatever it is, part of its research, part of its clinical care, part of its understanding society, part of it is the humanities. It's all of these things, Connie. It's all of these things and all brought in together. Yeah. And that's what makes it so rich and so rewarding. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's non linear in that way. It, it, it's this, this, and that's why it, it becomes a, life, a lifelong career. Mm -hmm. And I think also, I, I mean- Your way of being really, yeah. Right, I was just gonna say that, that it's, it's not only being pulled into this interesting specialty, but by doing this work, it actually changes you as a person. And if it doesn't, then I would suggest that people aren't being reflective enough or something like that, but oh. that it does kind of change your um, outcome or not your outcome, your outlook, I think of, of the whole world and the way that it is. Right, and feeling a responsibility to, uh, towards society as well as to us, to ourself and our profession and everything else. So it's, it's not just this isolated thing, it's, it's much harder. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking, is there any other questions or comments, Lynn, that you have? I've just been watching you take all of this in. Yeah, no. one, th one thing I'd just like to add again, I, I mentioned it, but just say that the humanities is really important as part of this. Yeah. Okay. I think one thing that you said that struck me that I think we've really tried to embody in the master's degree and of course in the PhD as well is the transdisciplinary nature of our practice. So as Connie mentioned, if I go into the room as a pharmacist and ask a question, the patient may ask me a question back that has nothing really to do with being a pharmacist. I can't just say, sorry, that's not my jam. You're going to have to wait for the social worker. So we do try to embrace that as a teaching philosophy in our programs to make sure that we can cross cover each other to a degree to make it for more seamless care for patients and families. Yeah, I think Lynn, I, I, just, to, just to answer that if I may, because I think it's a really important point uh, in when one's thinking of, uh, so patients, a patient might um, bear their soul to you, mm -hmm. not because you're a pharmacist, but because you're as a person. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, um, 
are really important that, you know, for you to listen to them and then to say, you know, what you're telling me is really important. We have specialists who really can address that. Is it okay if I ask that person to come talk with you? But I think sometimes, you know, teaching some of our students um, not to stop that conversation and immediately make a referral, but to really listen because they're choosing you as a person to unburden and, uh, and to bear their soul to. So it's a quality that's, you know, some of us will connect with one patient and not with another for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And that needs to be honored. Yeah. Such an important point. Mm. Thank you so much for doing this. Yes, thank no, you, Nessa. No, no, this has been lovely. This has been fun. This has been fun. Well, we're so grateful for all that you've done and all that you um, have offered the field and you continue to offer the field, I know, with your ethics and just the richness and, um, you know, wide perspective that you've offered. So, you know, on behalf of our students, behalf of all your patients, behalf of all of us as clinicians, as nurses, just thank you for all your contributions and and for spending time with us today. Thank you, Fanny. Connie, I've really liked it. And thank you, Lynn. It's it's, uh, good luck to your students. Thank you. I have a lot to learn from them too. <laughs> Don't we all? Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.